You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Colossians is where we find ourselves uh, this morning. Um, just want to say I'm so stoked to have you guys joining us for you to take your Sunday, to carve out a part of your Sunday, to, to be here with us. And so um, just a special welcome to you. Aloha if you're new. If you're new, if you're visiting, if you're kind of, you know, just checking us out, um, we just want to say we're so glad that you guys are here. And today's a special Sunday. Uh, it's a special day. There's a couple reasons why I'm excited. One is uh, there's a swelling, all right? Um, I know that might sound a little bit what, but uh, we've had a flat, month of, of absolutely no surf at all. And so the fact that there is a swelling right now just makes me uh, super, super excited. And so, um, you know, uh, I've been praying for it, not gonna lie. I've been praying for some waves, but, uh, and they're here. And so hopefully, I know like half of our church uh, spends their time out in the water, whether it be surfing or just doing different active stand-up paddle or bodyboarding, which isn't really surfing. Cough, just kidding. Um, whatever it is though, I hope you guys are able to get, that, get out there and enjoy. But at the same time, um, I'm more excited than the fact that we haven't had waves in a month and now we have a swelling is the fact that, that we find ourselves in a new study through a new book, the book of Colossians. And so we are um, really praying as a, as a team and as a church that, that this would be a book that God, would, we would look back on and we would be blessed by what God is doing in and through us. And so... Um, if you're wondering though why we study through books of the Bible, if you've been a part of us for any amount of time, we, we just finished up Ecclesiastes, so we spent some time in the book of Ecclesiastes, and now we're moving on to another book of the Bible. Um, that's just because that's what we do. We study through books of the Bible, and that's the, the fancy theological term for that is um, um, expositional preaching. Uh, where we go and approach a text and we exposit what God has said in the text. And so that's, that's what we're doing. And so not that theological words should in any way scare us, but that is what we mean when we say we study through books of the Bible. We exposit what God has said. And so um, we look at what Scripture said and its context how it is true in that context and what that means for us today and how that, that truth can transform us and make us more like Jesus today. And so um, expositing the text is simply beginning with what God has said. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter uh, what I have to say, what wisdom I have amounted for myself, or, or what, how much we laugh in here. And there'll be times of laughing, no doubt, and we have, and we will. And no, no, it doesn't matter how much emotion we have, or if we shed a tear or two or three, or how much things I can share to you. At the end of the day, preaching is about looking at what God has said in Scripture. Preaching is declaring what God has said because he has spoken. God has spoken. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us. God has chosen to speak to us mainly through the pages of Scripture. But there is, this is the main 
way. God has said, I'm going to reveal my character to you. I'm going to reveal my plan of redemption of who I am for sinful people. And the way that he does that is through scripture. And this is why we preach. This is why we go through books of the Bible. In fact, Paul told young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, of Jesus Christ, who judges the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season. Be ready out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul says to young Timothy, to young pastor who's there, who's doing, going through different struggles, who's tempted to say words of delight like we talked about last week and not words of truth because often words of truth are not delight, right? Words of truth are maybe nice to hear, but not always the things that we need to hear. And so Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Declare what God has said because God has spoken. God has revealed himself through the scriptures. And he says, do it in season. Meaning, you're gonna declare the word, you're to declare the word when everyone is doing it. When people are hungry for it. You're gonna do it when it's popular. And he says, do it out of season. Do it in seasons when people do not want the word of God. Do it, in peop- do it in times when many people are not opening up the scriptures and sharing what God has said, and even pulpits aren't doing that. He says, do, do it then too, Timothy. Be faithful to what I have said. And he says that we can move forward in confidence in correcting. We can move forward in confidence and instructing and in righteousness, exhorting, because we show people what God has said. And I felt that pressure. I know it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a young guy. In fact, I was having a conversation uh, with, with someone this last week and they're like, it's kind of weird that my pastor, I'm older than, than, than my pastor. And for some of you, that's true. For some of you, that's not true. And listen, if it wasn't for the scriptures, that truth would be very heavy on my heart, but I don't have to come up with anything new to say on Sunday morning. You know that? Because everything I have to share, everything that is to be declared to you on Sunday morning is nothing that I find within myself. It is everything that is found in Scripture. And so that is where I place my confidence. That is where we place our confidence as a church, not in any man, no matter how old or how young, but in Christ and in Christ and his word. And so uh, with that said, looking at what God has said, uh, hopefully you're in Colossians. If you haven't made your way there, make your way there right now, and let us all stand for the reading of the word. Colossians is a place between Philippians, um, just after Philippians there, so if you're having trouble finding it, make your way there. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and because of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard the word 
you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ to you on behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Jesus, thank you so much for this time that we have to open up Colossians today and to look at what you've said. And Jesus, may we gaze upon who you are. God, for those of us who maybe are seasoned and we've walked with you for a long time, we've gotten distracted or we've gotten exhausted or we're just beat down or we're tired or we are discouraged. Maybe we've lost our way on our vision of the gospel. Jesus, would you come and would you place yourself in the center of our lives once again through the power of the Holy Spirit? For those of us in here who've been drinking from wells that do not satisfy Jesus, may we approach you and may we drink deeply from your well so that we would never thirst again. Oh, Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need to be transformed into the image of the Son, and we need to see Jesus clearly. Because there are so many distractions, so many things that compete for our attention. So may we set our mind on the things that are above And for those who are in here who do not have a relationship with you, by your spirit, would you come and would you change that this morning? Would people repent from their sin? Would they trust in you as Lord and Savior, realizing that Jesus, you did pay the penalty, that they can come into relationship with you? Not because of anything bad or even good they've done, but because of who you are. So God, would you help us Would you bless this time that we have? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you guys can take a seat. Well, we're gonna, for the next few months, be making our way through Colossians. Uh, it's It's gonna take a long time, so I hope you get comfortable. We're gonna be driving the stakes in of our tent, so to speak, and putting our roots down in this book because there is a lot a lot of truth, and a lot of things that we need to hear from of what is happening in these verses. And it's our prayer that we would think clearly, that our hearts would be transformed by the gospel, and that anything that we find of residue from our past life or even current sins, that those things would be burned away, and that anything that does not glorify Jesus that is in our life would be removed from our life. And we know that as we study through the scriptures, that is really what is what happens. May God, through this book, cause us to be Jesus-centered, gospel-saturated people. Because there is not any one of us in here this morning who does not need the truths of the gospel. We all do. Every single one of us. Because all are sinners And even if we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, though our identity is no longer sinner, we, we still sin. We still make mistakes. We still stumble. 
We still get tripped up by things in our past or even things we never thought we would struggle with. All of us need help. Every single one of us in here this morning, we all need help. And there is not one of us here who doesn't need to be wrecked afresh by the gospel. What has happened today, sadly, is we've become bored with the gospel. We have lost our awe of God and his work of redemption. We've become bored with the greatest news that this world has ever known. And what we seek to do in in this series of what we've called uh, Christ in Everything is as we're looking at the book of Colossians, the anthem, the theme, the main idea of the book of Colossians is that we would see Christ in everything, in all the areas of our life, in the areas we think Christ doesn't belong, in the areas we've blocked out Christ, or in the areas we've drifted afar from Christ, and we don't even know it. We haven't even realized it. And so as we go through Colossians, seeing Christ in everything, that in seeing Christ in everything, we would live out our lives differently because Christ is in everything. Colossians is battling gospel delusion. Colossians is fighting against gospel complacency. And so we launch into Colossians. Let's look at verse 1. Colossians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So before we read any further, before we get into any doctrinal truths, any things that that, that have any implication on our lives, and looking at it in its context of what that meant for the people, then we immediately, our attention is immediately grabbed by the author, Paul. Paul, who says here, he is not an apostle because he willed it. And one of the most controversial people in all of Christianity is the apostle Paul. That even as a regenerate, born-again Christian, people were still hesitant to to talk to Paul if they saw him, or if Paul would come and walk in and sit on a a church service in the early church, when when people would sit there, he'd come sit up in the front, or wherever he would sit, people like, you know, that's Paul, you know what he did, you know his past, you you know what God has, I mean, mean, he was just a controversial person. People would be like, I can't believe that guy would ever come into church. Paul. Think about the person, the worst person you know in your life this morning. Think about them right now. You got them in your mind? Like, what would you do if you saw them, like, stroll into church right now and maybe sit right next to you? Like, oh, this is awkward. Uh, I'm not so comfortable right now. Can you please, I mean, I'm kind of happy at church, but I'm kind of not happy at church. And it's just like, you know, especially if you're single and it's like your ex and they walk in, that's really awkward. Just like, okay, it just got warm in here and the AC's on. So, but, 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 you know, you think of the worst person in your life. That's Paul times a thousand. Because before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Saul wanted nothing to do at all with Christianity. He despised it. He absolutely Hated it. And you can read in Acts 9, Acts chapter 9, 
The church is advancing. The church is growing. The church has exploded. And so now Acts chapter 9, you can read. Nine chapters into Acts, along comes Saul, strolls along under the scene of scriptures, and he's there, and he's ticked off so much at the growth of the church, at how the gospel has just exploded there in that region of the Middle East. Saul was so ticked off, he decided, I'm going to wage war against the church. I hate Christians. So that person you imagined, you know the worst person? Did they ever kill Christians? <laughs> Probably not. Well, Paul did. Paul is worst in the worst sense, or at least Saul in that matter, in that regard. Do you see that there is no will inside Paul's unregenerate soul to have affection or love for Jesus? He doesn't want Jesus. He hates Jesus. And the only involvement we had with the church is killing Christians. He wanted nothing to do with God. He wouldn't, or at least Jesus in that sense, though he, of course, no, his religious past as a Pharisee, he, everything he thought he was doing was actually for God. There is no will inside Paul's unregenerate soul to have love and affection for Jesus. And so you can read, actually, in Acts chapter 9, go there later, you can read that Paul in Acts 9, he was still, that as long as the church has been in existence for, that as far as the church has gotten, Paul is, Saul is still breathing out threats and murders against the church. Now, isn't that kind of crazy to think about? Like, he's breathing them out. Like, he didn't even just say, I hate the church. I want to murder Christians. He breathed in, he breathed out. And with every breath, he was breathing, I hate the church. I hate the church. That's how much he despised Christians and Christianity. And in his rage against the church, Saul was mobilizing to do more damage, as so was the church mobilizing and growing. And Saul was on his way to Damascus to do more harm to the church. Those of you, many of you know what happens. He's on his horse and God's glory comes down and Jesus knocks him off his horse. Paul is saved. Saul is saved and becomes Paul. He didn't will it. He was going against God. In fact, that's why Jesus said to him, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you going against what I have clearly made manifest in my disciples that I've come, that I've died, and that I have risen again? So Paul was saved. And so when Paul says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he isn't saying, I didn't will this for my life. I was going against what God wanted, but a greater will whose name is Christ Jesus invaded my life, changed my desires, and he gave me a new identity. And so those in the church in Colossae there, when they first received the letter of Colossians, it wasn't like the Bible like we flipped through today. It was a scroll. And they would have, unroll, they would have broken the seal. They would have, they would have read through the scroll. And the first thing they would have seen was, Paul. So they knew, oh my gosh, Paul. 
from Paul. There was weight. There was profound truth. God saved Paul. He was the least likely person to ever get saved. But God saved him. And so they knew full well that Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and that every statement following verse 1, every word following verse 1 of chapter 1 was from God and that God was used this letter to transform their lives. And we know this to be true today for us, that God would use this to transform our lives today. Okay, so Paul is the author. And like any letter, who is the recipient? Look at verse two. The saints, don't get afraid of that word. Saints are not people who are in stained glass windows or wear white robes. It's not just held for them. If you have affection and love for Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're a saint. You are. So to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So, we have this letter penned by Paul. We know Timothy is by his side and he is writing to the saints there at Colossae. Um, Colossae today is, it, it really was a tri-city then. Today it's modern day Turkey. Um, the time Paul wrote this book was somewhere around 60 AD to 62 AD. And Colossae was a hub of cultures, of philosophies and of worldviews all trying to fight their way to the top. It was very diverse, much like us here who live in Hawaii. We have many different ethnicities, many different views of, of worldviews, many different political views, many different religions that are here that are all kind of trying to compete and make their way to the top. And that is exactly how it was in Colossae. And the reason why there were so many worldviews and it was so diverse there was because the Roman Empire, which ruled with a heavy hand. The, the Romans um, made these roads, and for those of you guys who know history and love history, um, you know, Roman roads are incredible. Um, you know, we can't, we got nothing on Rome here, okay? We build a road here, and it's like bad in two years, right, if it lasts that long. And then, though, I mean, when they would build a road, they did such a good job that there are bridges that were built by the Romans that you could still drive on to this day, and bridges that are still used that you could uh, ride bikes or walk on or sidewalks or pathways throughout different regions from Rome. And these roads, uh, the, these Roman roads stretched so far, so wide, they were like veins spreading throughout that region of the world. There were 50,000 miles worth of pavement and road. And so what happened is these roads connected everyone. The world got small from these roads. And so, so they're in Colossae now where they would kind of have their own culture, their own thing, their own vibe going on. Um, it was now a hub because all these people could come and say, I want to bring this religion here. And so religions and beliefs were all imported into Colossae, all vying and fighting and trying to make their way to the top. In fact, that's where that saying comes from. You know, the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, there, there it is. So now we approach verse 3. He begins with the first real thing that he says as he's beginning to exhort and encourage. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, Paul says, we always give thanks. Now, Paul is pretty encouraging here at the beginning. Now, we know Paul can get intense, right? 
oh, can he get intense. But he's pretty encouraging up front. He's saying he's uplifting them. He's encouraging them. He's praising them. But is he praising them because of all the things that they have done? No, no, no. He says we always thank God. Paul says we always give thanks. He never praises them from their own faithfulness that they stirred up within their soul. He doesn't praise them for the hope that they found within and of themselves. He doesn't thank them for loving one another with the love that they have for each other. At least at first, he doesn't. He always thanks God. Because Paul understands that all of those things, faithfulness, hope, love even for one another, is never a tribute that can be just, that we can take a claim for ourselves. Like, yeah, look, look how loving and awesome I am. No, you're loving and awesome because God is loving and awesome because of the grace of God. And the church in Colossians or any Christians for that matter, not just in Colossians, but any Christians to this day, that what does this mean then? If he always thinks God, if he doesn't give credit to them, he says, we always thank God. Which means what? You and I, we can't walk with swag, can we? Like, do we have any bragging rights as Christians now? I find it ironic how there are some people, you hear people talk, yeah, that guy's such a prideful Christian. Really? I mean, I mean, does prideful and Christian really belong in the same category, especially understanding the grace of God? No one is going to be in heaven because of anything amazing they did, right? No one is going to stand before God and be like, oh God, I'm here because you know, you know me. You know all the great things I, I did and no. In fact, Titus 3, 5 says that he saved us not according to works done by us in righteousness. What does that mean? That even on our best day, even on the day when we're doing everything as righteous as we possibly could, he didn't save us because of anything good we did. But according to his own mercy, Titus 3, 5 says, anyone who has an encounter with an amazing God is never the same. Let's look at Moses. Was he the same after he, he had an encounter with the glory of God? After hearing God speak to him audibly, he couldn't have enough of God. So he's like, God, can I just see you? And God's like, no, because if you see me, you're going to be incinerated on the spot. So then what? Well, how about Moses? You hide behind a boulder. I'm going to pass by and, and you will be able to at least experience more of my glory. So Moses hides behind the boulder. God's glory passes by. And what, is he forever changed? You know he is. The dude's glowing for crying out loud from the glory of God. Like he walks down the mountain and he's glowing white because he had seen the presence of God, well, experienced the presence of God Almighty, though he did not see him because he would not live. How about Abraham? When God had visited him and told him the promise that he had, listen, you tell any hundred-year-old dude he's going to have a kid, it's going to change his life for sure, all right? And that's what happened. How about Paul, riding on his horse one day, out to kill more Christians 
God's glory comes down, knocks him off the horse. He's there on his back, transformed by the grace of God, experiences the glory of God. Is he the same? No, I mean, the guy goes from killing Christians quite literally to becoming a killer Christian. I mean, that's the craziest testimony ever. Or I can't help but think of Jacob. He thought he walked with swag, didn't he? Yeah, I'm God's chosen one. I stole my birthright, even though I should have had faith in God to begin with, that he was going to give me the birthright. So Jacob, chosen one of God, gets it handed to him, doesn't he? I don't know if he fully got the message with the whole Leah incident, you know, when, he, when he's like, who are you in the morning? Oh, no, you're ugly. You're not Rachel. Ah. And so he's looking at this bride, and he's like, oh, man. So that kind of brought him down a little bit. But he still had swag in his step, didn't he? He still had pride in him. And then, of course, we read later that Jacob decides to, crazy incident, wrestle God. Like, how do you think that's going to go? Wrestle, oh, I'm just going to wrestle God. Let's, yeah, wrestles God, and what happens? Of course, he loses, and what? He walks with a limp for the rest of his life. No more swag. It is impossible to be transformed by the grace of God and not have a limp in your step. It is impossible for a Christian who genuinely has begun to understand and grasp the depth and the meaning of the grace and the good news of Jesus Christ and to have a whole lot of swag and pride in their life. God's glory has a way of beating those things out of us. And Paul, knowing this to be true, says we always thank God. All glory is to God. All praise is due Jesus' name. We can't take any credit. It's all because of him. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when we pray for you. Praying for them. Paul, knowing this to be true, says, I've been praying for you. You have been on my mind. You've been on my heart. And you know when like in Christian circles today, when we say, hey, can you pray for me? What do we say? Yeah, I'll pray for you. And then what do you do? Not pray for them. I'm totally guilty. I've done that many times. Like, yeah, brother, I'll pray for you. Not, and walk away and you completely forget about it. And then they'll come back. You'll be like, hey man, thanks for praying. Look what God did. It's like, clearly it wasn't because of me. Because I didn't pray for you. I mean, we, we never, do we say that? No, we never say that. Never, we never say that. But Paul has no question on his needs. He's on his knees pleading for them, praying for them, praying that Christ would stay in the center of everything. Now, we don't have time to get there today because that's what really the rest of the study of Colossians is. But what is pray, Paul's prayer for the, those there in, in the church of Colossae? Well, it is really that Christ would be in everything. It is what we're going to study throughout the rest of the book, that they would see Jesus, that they would glorify Jesus, that Jesus would be in the center of their lives, no matter what other things are happening. How much of us pray like this? Pray on behalf of our own lives and our brothers and sisters, praying that Christ would be in the center of everything. Praying that Jesus would be their, their object of worship and most affection. 
Because so often when we pray, isn't it like, all right, God, so uh, let's talk. I got this for you. I got this for you. I really need to do this, especially because I got this payment to make uh, next Wednesday. So if, uh, come Tuesday, I'm going to be bugging you about it more. And so, God, I, I got these needs. I got these needs. I got these wants. I got these wants. Come on, God. And then all while we forget who we're praying to, how big he is, and how we've often pushed him aside and we've put other things in the place of Jesus. And so, Paul is praying for them. He's thanking God for them. In fact, that's what we see when Jesus taught us how to pray, right? When Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this in Matthew 6. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does Jesus teach us in a model to pray, to pray how to pray? He says, glorify God first. Acknowledge that God is in heaven. Make much of Jesus in your prayer life. And before you begin to look at yourself, before you begin to do, give him all the requests that you have, acknowledge God, worship God, glorify God, look at his majesty, look at his power. And when you pray, realize who you're praying to. Father who is in heaven. Holy, perfect are you, God. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you accomplish all that you desire and you would seek to accomplish? And then what? And then give us this day. Today. Our daily bread. Acknowledge Jesus. Glorify Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Ask that Jesus and God would continue to accomplish all that they are accomplishing. And then, you got those requests? All right, after that, then. In fact, maybe some of those requests might look kind of pathetic, right? Oh, man, I look at some of the things I prayed for in my life. I'm like, wow, God, I am so stupid. Thank God you didn't answer those prayer requests. And Paul is pleading for them. This is what he is doing. He's not pleading for them to have an easy life, but that they would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is why Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this, look at verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul hasn't visited the Colossians up to this point. You know, he kind of like knows a lot about them. He studied them. And you know how often you, um, you know, when you want to travel to a place and you become obsessed with a place. Like when I had first met my wife, she was like obsessed with Paris and she knew everything there is to know about Paris. And I want to eat here and I want to do this. But she'd like never gone there at all. And so that's, that's often what happens is we, be, we become passionate and compassionate about a certain place. And so we study and we learn. And, and though th that's kind of what Paul is, is really doing here. He hasn't been to Colossae yet, but he is passionate and excited. And he's hearing all these great things and he cannot wait to go there, though he hasn't been able to go there up to this point. Yet he has heard of the love that they have for the saints. He has heard about it. Isn't that interesting? See, if you have been transformed, if we have been radically changed by the gospel, we will have love for 
the saints. There's no separating it. They loved one another. They loved their own people. In fact, John, uh, 1 John 4.20 says that if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. You can't say, oh, I love God and, and I hate my brother. In fact, I was having a conversation with my, uh, my, my now four-year-old actually a few months back. And he was like, Daddy, I just hate my brother, but I love Jesus. And I was like, oh, really, son? And I didn't know if it was like a test or what he was doing. So I was like, well, let's talk about this then, because does that, does that really work? According to 1 John, he would say no. He would be a liar, for he does not love his brother. Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. No man can say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died. He gave himself up for the church. He spilled out his own blood on a cross for his bride, the church. And if we are Christians, that means we are saying that I identify with Christ, that I love what Jesus loves, that I despise what Jesus despises. And since Jesus loves his church and died for the church, that means I love the church and I give myself for the church that Jesus gave himself to. We love what Jesus loves. See, there is an unbreakable link between loving Jesus and loving the church. The Colossians loved one another. They loved the church. And this was so evident that Paul heard about it, that their love for one another was tangible. You could see it. Outsiders who were not even believers could look in and be like, man, those, those people love each other. Again, you can't love God and hate his bride. And I know this is sensitive for many because I know many of you have been burned by the church and I'm not coming down on you at all, okay? And when I say love the church, I'm not saying this means you agree with everything the church does, okay? This does not mean that every church is perfect or that this church is perfect. Trust me, we are not a perfect church at all. And we are going to fail you and let you down if we haven't failed you and let you down already. And maybe the bride has a big nose. Maybe the bride has some, some whacked out hair. Maybe the bride has a lot of personal problems. But as imperfect as the bride of Christ is, don't forget that the bride is Jesus's and the church is clothed by his white and pure righteousness. So be careful about what smack you talk on his church. And what we mean by church is not just a bunch of people getting together, singing songs and clapping. What we mean by church is glorifying Jesus by worshiping over the word and by taking in communion and, and by participating in baptism. Those are the things that mark a church. And there's, the list is a little bit greater than that. But man, you talk smack on my wife. We'll go in the back parking lot right now. We'll talk. We'll, we'll settle this, okay? I know I'm scrawny, but I, I'm, I'm scrawny. I'll fight like a scrawny dude, okay? How more so with Jesus' bride? Careful what you say about his bride. And this is why I'm very hesitant in my heart to put down other churches. There are other churches. God's doing things through other churches. Now there are many churches that God is closing the doors on and many churches that should, or are open that maybe shouldn't be open. But we are to love 
the bride of Christ. Why should we love the bride of Christ? Look at verse 5. There's our answer. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. What are you saying here? You don't love the church because the church is lovable. You love the church because your hope is in heaven and you better get used to this because we're all going to be chilling in heaven, parting with Jesus in eternity. So this is just the prequel before the sequel. We're just practicing for heaven. And he says, you don't have to hope in a pastor. You don't have to hope in a service that, oh man, maybe this is the message that will really transform my life. Notice Jesus who transformed your life. And maybe he very well, very well could use a message to penetrate your soul. But don't limit it to the things that are horizontal. Put your hope in Christ. No matter how great the church is or how badly the church fails you. All right, verse six. Paul is going to, we're going to close our sermon with this, these closing thoughts from Paul. He says in verse six, which has come to you, what has come to you, the gospel, as you indeed, as indeed the whole world is being bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it, understood it, and the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Not love within themselves, but love within the Spirit. Okay, so what's happening here in closing? What is Paul saying in verses 6 through verses 8? He is saying that the gospel is mobilizing. And Saul, who was once out to stop the viral spread of the gospel, has now been tra- changed and transformed, is now on board, and he is actually spreading the very thing which once he was trying to kill. And so Paul was one day, he was in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. He opened up the scriptures, and Paul said, all right, I'm going to, sh- just like we're doing today, he, sat, he stood there, declared what God had said. He said, this is what God has said. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's how you can be transformed by what Christ has done because he has been raised from the dead, and there is someone sitting under that message Paul taught, and his name was Epaphras. And Epaphras heard it. And Epaphras received it. And Epaphras believed in Jesus. He understood the grace and truth, Paul said, along with those in Colossae. So then, okay, notice this. I want you guys to see this in closing, all right? The gospel is declared. The gospel is received. The gospel transforms. And the gospel sends. Epaphras heard it, receives it, is transformed by it, and then he goes back to Colossae. He goes back to where he once lived. He goes back to declare who Christ was. Epaphras had to go back to his workplace. He had to go back to his family. He had to go back to his friends and say, 
Because he was on a trip and he went back and he said, I've encountered Christ. And after sitting Paul and after being growing under the gospel of Paul's ministry, he had to share the good news of what Jesus has done. And the message that Jesus has forgiven sinners has spread so virally. Paul says in verse six, what does he say? That the whole world is bearing fruit. That, That everyone is receiving it. That wherever the gospel goes, no matter how dark the place is, no matter how weird the messenger is, no matter how things kind of seem strange about it, the gospel is bearing fruit. What truth is Paul revealing to us? Closing here. The gospel of Jesus Christ multiplies. It never subtracts. It is ever growing The gospel is ever advancing and there is no stopping the movement of the gospel. The gospel is spreading to this day to the ends of the earth. In fact, I was just watching this thing by a BBC and they had this airplane flying over this remote tribe where these people have never been in contact with the outside world. And it is a trip. They paint their faces orange uh, to fend off predators with papaya seeds there in the Amazon. It is incredible. And of course, the the whole documentary was like, we can't touch them. We don't go in there. We don't want them to die of any of the diseases, which of course would be tragic. But at the same time for us, it's like, no, we go. There's still people to hear the good news of the gospel. There are people who have not heard and have not seen and have not experienced the grace of God to be transformed by it. In fact, think about who has shared the gospel with you. Think about the person who shared the gospel with you. And then if you know, think about maybe how they received the gospel. And let's just step outside of this for a moment, outside of ourselves, and then how they received the gospel. And then how maybe they received the gospel. And then how they received the gospel. And then how they received the gospel. You know how far back you're going to go? 2,000 years ago to Paul. And Peter. And James. Thomas. These disciples, our heritage as Christians goes back to them. And there is a tie between us and them, and it doesn't stop with us. The gospel is to multiply. The reason Christ, hear me out, I, I need you to hear this. The reason Christ has drawn you in is only to send you out, to go out and to make more disciples. And when we say this, this is what we mean when we say as a church of, by being on mission. When we say being on mission, what we're saying is being missionaries and right where God has placed us. Being on mission doesn't just mean getting a passport, climbing on an airplane, flying to an overseas country and trying to share the gospel with the people who don't speak our language. Though that is true and we're not putting that down. That is very much the case. But being on mission also means being intentional about getting the gospel to our community and to our culture right where we live, right where our roots have gone down deep and to where we live. In fact, Jesus said, summarizing up the law, when the Pharisees said, what are the greatest commandments? Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor means you live in a community, you live in a culture, and you live with the people whom you love and you show the love of Christ with. To be, that's what it means to be on mission. 
And everything, hear me out, everything that happens on Sunday, everything that happens as we study the scriptures is for us not to stay here and keep our cute little Christian bubble and to be comfortable, but is for us to pop the bubble, to go out into the world, to be uncomfortable, to be with sinful people and to show them the love of Christ. That's what it means. Because being on mission doesn't happen by accident. We have to be intentional about how we reach people with the gospel. And so um, for me, I'm just going to share a few things I do. And I've heard some ideas with you. In fact, there's someone in our church who uh, is a fisherman. And actually, like, he's got people captive on his boat. And so he forces them to hear the gospel. And I'm saying forcing them maybe is the best idea. But at times, he's like, hey, I love the heart, though. You're on my boat. You're going to hear the gospel, Right? And there's different ways we can, we can do this. And so um, for, for me, you know, I always try to go out to the same surf spots. I, I know that might seem weird, but man, I've, I've gotten to know faces. I've gotten to know people and they've gotten to know me. And, and so and I know where they work. And I know uh, some, one of the guys that I'm, I'm praying for regularly is, is on the verge of divorce and his kids hate him. And, and so I go out to that same spot because I know I'm going to see the same faces and have an opportunity to share the gospel. And so some guys, I'm like, we're, you know, like, hey, man, let me tell you about Jesus. They're like, hold on a second, a wave's coming, right? Peace. And we'll see you out here in a minute. Like, well, we're going to talk in a minute, or I'll even go to the same surf shop. I can go to another surf shop and get other stuff. But I go to the same places because I mean, they, they know me by name. I know them by name. And I've invited them to church, and I've been able to, to share it with them. And and, and for you moms, you got that park you go to. You got the park you're there all the time. And you've seen those moms. You're not there just to let your kids play at the park. You're there to make disciples. When you go to the grocery store and you're standing out, try to pick the same lady at checkout and begin to, to give the gospel to them. See, we can, if, if we are missionaries, it means we study the culture and the context of which we live. And we see, how can I give these people Jesus? We exist to glorify God by making disciples. That is our great commission. And I haven't been perfect at it, and I'm, neither will you. But where is our heart? Where is my heart when we have lost brokenness to people who do not know Jesus? What has happened? to our heart. And I've looked at my own life when I've become inconvenienced by people bugging me about the gospel or people who don't know Jesus. Where, what has gone wrong in my own heart when I look at my life and say, I've lost love for lost people. This is our great commission. We are here to reach lost people. And I'm so blessed to see the, the, the growth that we've seen in this church. I know some of you have come from other churches and, okay, cool. If this is where God wants you, we're glad that you're here. We've also sent people to other churches because they didn't feel like this was, okay, that's okay, fine. But we want to see lost sheep come into sheepfold. And that's not just my job or pastor's jobs. That's our job. I'm going to close with this, Matthew 28. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, his disciples, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you go, th- go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And I am 
with, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, the age is ending. Your life is not going to be here forever. Your life is here and then it's gone. Everything that you see in this world is temporal. Make disciples. Go and make disciples. Be on mission. Paul was on mission. This is a letter to people who are living on mission in Colossae. And this is to drive us so that we would see Jesus rightly, so that we would understand him and worship him in spirit and in truth, so that we would go out and make more disciples. Let's pray. God, this is just the beginning of this incredible book of Colossians. And though there's been much truth in history and transformation of what we see looking at Paul's lives, God, we know that your word is alive. We know that your word is true. And we know that we need to be transformed by you, Holy Spirit. So Jesus, by your grace, in this moment, would we push all things aside that have distracted us from you, that have taken our eyes off of who you are, and may we be wrecked afresh by your glory so that we would walk with a limp in our steps, so that we would give you glory in all that we would do, and so that we would be in a place where we are broken for those, Jesus, who do not know you, for those who do not have a relationship with you, Holy Spirit, would you help us to be like the church at Colossae? That their love for for one another was evident. And Jesus, you said that the world is going to know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. God, if there could be one thing that would mark Shorebreak Church is that we seek to amplify you. We seek to love one another. May we be a people, God, who get outside of our own comfort, get outside of our protected lives and begin to live on mission to see lost people come to you. To see people transformed by you. So for those in here, Jesus, who do not know you or have a relationship with you, God, we pray that they would come have a relationship with you, that they'd be transformed by you. And for the rest of us, as we close in these songs to sing about you, God, may your glory come down. May we ever be more like Jesus and transformed. God, we love you. Thank you so much for this time that we have in your word. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.